All right. If you have uh, a Bible, go ahead and open and find Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 6. And this morning we're starting a new section in, within the book of Joshua, namely the point at which we move from their, their preparation to take the land. Now we've entered into a stage of the book where we, we see the actual con- beginning of the conquest to take the land. And so that, this is a section that begins here in chapter 6. It's going to run all the way through chapter 12, at which point the focus will then shift to how they divided up the land among the tribes once they had taken the land. <clears throat> so we come to chapter 6 today, and we're not, and I'd say with chapter 6, we're not just coming to a transitional point in the book. We're, we're coming to probably the most well-known story in the book of Joshua, namely Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. <laughs> uh, this is one of those stories that if, at least if you grew up in Southern Baptist circles, uh, you, you were taught as a kid maybe through the song, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. I'm not going to sing it. The song which is sort of not exactly right. Uh, Ralph Davis made the point in his commentary on this chapter that uh, if they, if they made a movie, if they just took Joshua 6 and made a movie, made it into a movie, they would probably have this long, drawn-out scene of the battle, right, to take Jericho. Um, but it wouldn't be true to the, 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 the chapter, because in this chapter, as we're going to read just a minute, there's, the space given to the battle itself is a mere one and a half verses, right? Um, and even though the final verse of the chapter says that the uh, that that uh, of Joshua that his fame was in all the land it was not because Joshua was a great warrior or anything of the sort but it says that because as the last verse also says it was because the Lord was with Joshua so this chapter is not about Joshua fighting this great battle of Jericho this this chapter is without question about the Lord first and foremost he's at the front he's at the center and he's at the end of the chapter all throughout um, and so that means that's going to be our focus as we look at Joshua 6 today I want to read the chapter together first and then I'll, I'll lay out how I want us to walk through it and think through it together so Joshua chapter 6 we'll begin reading in verse 1 read the whole chapter now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel none went out and none came in And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. 
And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day. And, they, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the, the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword but to the two men who had spied out the land Joshua said go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her and they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it only, only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we ask as we come humbly to it that you would give us eyes to see the truth about you, about ourselves, uh, about what you call us to do in this passage. 
Give us eyes to see it. Give us minds to understand it clearly and grasp it. Give us hearts to embrace and love it. Wills to obey. Give us ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. May Jesus be glorified in, in this chapter today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there is uh, quite a bit to think about in this chapter we just read. Quite a bit. And to try to see as much of it as we can, um, I just hinted in my prayer, I thought I, we would approach this chapter uh, much like I often encourage you to think about a chapter, either in your private study or especially if we have time at the end of the hour to discuss around your tables, I often give you three questions as a guide to think through a passage. What does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about ourselves? What does this passage lead us to do? Um, and that is how I would like us to think through this passage together, uh, precisely those questions. So if you're taking notes, that's our three points. What does it teach us about God? Was it teach about ourselves? What does it lead us to do? And I think if we, if we, um, if we dive deeply into those questions, this 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 episode is going to yield us a lot of gospel truth uh, to teach us and to encourage us. So, that being said, let's begin with the first question, uh, the one that no doubt yields the most in this chapter. What does this passage teach us about God? Uh, there are at least, and I'm going to point out three three things that this, this passage teaches us about God. I think it probably teaches us more than that, but these three are really patently obvious in the passage. Um, and uh, and I, I think it doesn't just tell us truth generically about God, but I think it tells us this truth about God in, a, in sort of a forward-looking way. And what I mean by that is that everything that it teaches us about God in this chapter is also teaching us something about Christ and the gospel, okay? So the, the first truth about God that this passage reveals, in my estimation, is that his will is sovereign. His will is sovereign. Where do we see that here? Well, it's prominent throughout, but I'll highlight three places where we see that his will is sovereign. I love how this chapter begins. You begin in verse 1 with this description of Jericho. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, from Jericho's perspective, according to this verse, they were initially pretty terrified. They were kind of scared, apparently, they were, and they were hunkered down. Like, nobody goes in, nobody comes out, here we are. Uh, from Israel's perspective, though, right, that had to be at least a little discouraging. I mean, at least somewhat overwhelming. I mean, Jer because Jericho was not a completely insignificant city. Jericho was situated on a, on a trade route, on a, a prominent trade route all the way uh, to, the, to the sea. And, uh, and, and because it was on a trade route, it was a place of means. They had means to be, it, they weren't as large as like Jerusalem, but they were a, not a small city. And they could afford also uh, to have high, prominent walls protecting the city. Uh, and it's completely shut up, impregnable. And so even if the residents of Jericho had completely shut themselves off for fear of Israel, from Israel's perspective, was that even a reasonable fear on their part if there's no way for us to get in there and do anything, right? That, what I'm trying to say is the first verse of this chapter isn't just meant to strike you with the fear of the people of Jericho that they had of Israel, but also with the seeming hopelessness or 
helplessness of Israel's task as they approached the city of Jericho. Because right? Jericho was hunkered down, high imposing walls, and they weren't just paralyzed in fear, by the way, but apparently, like you would expect, were prepared to make a defense of themselves. I mean, the fact that in verse 2, when the Lord speaks, he mentions Jericho's king and mighty men of valor, as well as at the end of the book, you don't have to turn there, but in Jer Joshua 24, 11, we read, and you went over, looking back on this event, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. Right, so right off the bat in verse 1, you're met with a fearful, yeah, it says in verse 1, but a determined and well-protected Jericho. That's what Israel sees. But as soon as that settles on you in this chapter, the Lord speaks to Joshua in verse 2. And what does he say? See, I have given Jericho into your hand. See? See what? Right? That's not what I feel like I'm looking at. I don't feel like I'm looking at something that has already been given into my hand. If I'm Israel, and hint, we are Israel in this chapter. If I'm Israel, that's not what it looks like to me at all. Right? But the will and decree of God is more sovereign than the apparent wisdom and strength of man. But notice, too, that when the Lord speaks to Joshua here in verse 2, he doesn't say, I will give Jer Jericho into your hand. He says, I have given Jericho into your hand. Already done. Already decreed. The fate is already sealed. It just needs to work itself out in time and space. But even if Joshua believes this, and I'm sure he does, he probably still doesn't understand how. And then the Lord tells him how. He gives him instructions, instructions that probably still left Joshua curious. Here's what he, here's what he hears. I've given it in your hand. Here's what you do. March around the city once a day for six days. Uh, carry the Ark of the Covenant with you. Blow the trumpets. Well, otherwise, don't say a word. Don't shout. Don't speak. Totally quiet. Then on the seventh day, march around it seven times for all those things, blowing trumpets. And then when I say shout, shout. That's it. When they did, when they did that, the impregnable walls fell to the ground for them to take the city. Question, what does marching in circles, blowing trumpets, and shouting have to do with the crumbling of mighty walls? Not a thing. Not one thing. That's why Hebrews 11.30, when it describes what happened here, it says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith? Yes, because it was not marching, it was not trumpets, it was not shouting that made the walls fall. It was the will of a sovereign God. And, 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 and we, we see that. It, it, was, it fell because only the sovereign will of God can cause those walls to happen after marching trumpets and shouting. We see God's will is sovereign also in His promise well, first, in this promise that, that he had already given Jericho into their hands before a battle had even taken place, we see his sovereign will in his plan to cause the walls to fall down without their laying a finger on it. 
We also see his sovereign will at the end of the chapter. After the battle is over, Joshua then prophesies in verse 26. And he says, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. This isn't Joshua just popping off. Like this isn't Joshua taking a victory lap and, and in the enthusiasm of the moment saying, yeah. Like this is, this is Joshua prophesying, right? Because uh, Joshua, doesn't, Joshua doesn't have the authority or the ability to say anything he just said, right? This is the Lord speaking through him, and lo and behold, a little over 500 years later, 500 years later, that's a long time. In 1 Kings chapter 16, when a guy named Ahab, a really wicked guy, was king in Israel, we read in 1 Kings 16.34, it was in Ahab's days that Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The Lord, by his sovereign will, decrees, and on that basis promises, and on that basis brings it to pass without fail. But not only does this chapter reveal to us that the, the will of the, the Lord God is sovereign, but it also highlights this truth about him, that his justice is patient. His justice is patient. We actually see this beautiful truth in him, about him, displayed in what for many is the most difficult aspect of this chapter and of the conquest altogether, which is what? How the people of Israel, how, not, not the people of Israel, how the people of Jericho and even the animals in Jericho were devoted complete, completely to destruction. Um, contrary to what are often knee-jerk reactions to that historical reality, I propose that rather than highlighting some kind of injustice in God, it brings to the forefront His justice and not capricious, impulsive justice, but extraordinarily patient justice. How do we see that here? We see it easily if we are reminded of who actually the Canaanites and the Amorites were. I brought this up a few weeks ago. The people of Jericho were prime examples of Canaanites. Often, by the way, in the Old Testament, Amorites, uh, the Amorites were the largest subset of people living in Canaan. So often... Amorites and Canaanites are synonymous terms. And, uh, and so recall how far back, that it, as, it was as far back as the days of Abraham in Genesis 15. You were fit, a mere 15 chapters into the whole Bible. In Genesis 15, the Lord prophesied to Abraham that hundreds of years after he lived, Abraham's descendants, after being slaves in Egypt, God would bring them out of that bondage 
And then he says this in Genesis 15, verses 14 and 16. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, that's Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, that's true, end of Exodus, and they shall come back here, this, this promised land, in the fourth generation, in other words, sometime after that, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites and the Canaanites was already well known in the days of Abraham. Like, that would not have... When, when, when it said in Genesis 15, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, they wouldn't have gone, the who? The what? They would have known what it was talking about even in the days of Abraham. But God was patiently delaying His justice even then. And it's all the more remarkable when we consider and remember what the iniquity of the Amorites and Canaanites actually was to get away from just this general nebulous term, iniquity, sin. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? Uh, um, does the Bible actually give us any indication as to what that iniquity was, what that sin of the Canaanites and Amorites actually was. Indeed, it does. For one, the very name Jericho means moon. Moon. Which probably means that that was a city dedicated to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Like astral worship. They, 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 were, they, were, they were pagans, as many pagans did and still do. Worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So that's, that was their starting point. But further, Leviticus 18, okay, we don't, we don't talk about Leviticus very much, but Leviticus 18 is a whole chapter of the law of Moses dedicated to instructing the people of Israel not to act in the ways of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And it outlines very specifically several examples of what he's referring to. The chapter begins, Leviticus 18 begins in verse 3 saying, You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. The Lord begins to outline and itemize what he's talking about. And the Lord begins to list sexual sin and perversion among the Canaanites. The bulk of this chapter, verses 6 to 17 of Leviticus 18, the Lord basically forbids the Canaanite practice of incest. Right? He, he, sexual relations with different members of your own family and relatives. Verse after verse after verse after verse. In verse 18 of Leviticus 18, the Lord forbids the Canaanite practice of polygamy. And it doesn't say don't have more than one wife. It says don't, don't marry a rival wife a rival wife to the one that you already have. Polygamy was rampant. After providing a whole litany of heterosexual sins rampant among the Canaanites, in verse 22, the Lord forbids homosexuality that was prominent in, in Canaan, among the Canaanites. In verse 23, the Lord forbids sexual acts with animals, which was prevalent among the Canaanites. And if that were not enough... Right? Verse 21 says this, and I quote, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. 
and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. The, the Canaanites would burn their children alive in sacrifice to the demonic god Molech. That's mentioned again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 14 of the Canaanites who burned their sons and daughters as offerings to Molech. And they're practicing of divination and, and a, the demonic practice of trying to communicate with the dead. It was a dark, dark, dark place. And it's for all of these reasons that the Lord says in Deuteronomy 9, 5 to Israel, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving, out, is driving them out before you. I don't think we can fully, I can't, I don't think we can fully wrap our minds around the gut-wrenching, nauseating, horrifying wickedness of Jericho. And that was Jericho in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, this still Jericho in Joshua 6. The Lord is amazingly patient. His justice is also perfectly just. To cite Ralph Davis one more time, he notes, he says, the conquest is not a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out at the behest of their vicious God hundreds of innocent God-fearing folks. In the biblical view, the God of the Bible uses none too righteous Israel as the instrument of his, of, of, of his just judgment on a people who persistently re reveled in their iniquity. By the way, hundreds of years later, the same thing would be done to Israel and to Judah by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So as I said earlier, this conquest doesn't highlight the capricious and impulsive injustice of the Lord. But quite contrary, it makes inescapably clear His extraordinarily patient justice. And confirming that even more is a third truth that this passage teaches us about God, and that is His mercy is available. His mercy is available. We see that, as you might have guessed already in this passage, in the emphasis given to Rahab whom we met back in chapter 2. God causes Joshua to remember the promise that they had made to her back in chapter 2 because she, she believed in the God of Israel and trusted in His mercy, and she demonstrated that by hiding the two spies that came to scout out the land. When the walls fell down on the seventh day and the people went in to, to devote that city to destruction, they saved alive her and all her people. But note how in chapter 6, Rahab is still re repeatedly referred to as Rahab the prostitute, right? She is called Rahab the prostitute in verse 17, and again in verse 25, and in verse 22, she is simply referred to as the prostitute. That'll be clear in verse 23, they call her by name. I don't think this chapter repeatedly refers to her as the prostitute in order to heap further shame on her for her sin, but to highlight even more brightly the mercy of the Lord on her. Recall what, I don't want to itemize it again, but just recall the gut-wrenching wickedness of Jericho. What evidence do we have that Rahab, a prostitute in that city, was any more righteous than the others? There isn't any. 
But she sought the mercy of the Lord and repented of her sins and her wickedness, and she found mercy in the Lord. Richard Hess, in his commentary on Joshua, points out that in this chapter, there are 102, 102 Hebrew words devoted to describing the destruction of Jericho. 102. There are 89 Hebrew words devoted to the Lord's mercy shown in the rescue of Rahab. In other words, almost as much is said about the mercy shown to Rahab as is said about the destruction of Jericho. And her story illustrates that any of those in Jericho would have found mercy with the Lord if they had come as she did in repentance and faith. So we've seen the Lord's sovereign will. We've seen his patient justice. We've seen the availability of his mercy. But before we move on to what this passage teaches us about ourselves, I want us to note one more thing about the Lord here. Looking at Joshua 6, how are we to conceive of the Lord in this chapter? And I I know that's probably not a well-worded question, so I'm just going to go ahead and um, tell you. This is is one of those places where our chapter divisions in our English Bibles are not altogether helpful. Um, Because I'm inclined to agree with many commentators that believe that the the Lord's words to Joshua in verses 2 through 5 are a continuation of the conversation that started back in chapter 5, verse 13, between Joshua and this mysterious figure who identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. And uh, chapter 6, verse 1, merely being a parenthetical break in the narrative. Last week, I gave you the reasons I believe that in chapter 5 and here, that the, the commander of the Lord's army who appeared there was a theophany. It was, a, it, was a, it was an Old Testament appearance, temporary appearance, this time in flesh, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. A temporary physical appearance or theophany of God the Son in the Old Testament that anticipates the permanent theophany that would take place in Jesus Christ in his incarnation. So I believe that this is still the theophanic appearance of God the Son as the commander of the army of the Lord directing this conquest against Jericho to Joshua. And it reminds us that everything that this teaches us about God in Joshua 6, therefore, is also teaching us that about Christ, who is there in temporary theophanic form directing this this conquest. And... and, 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 uh, yeah, we, we, know from, we know from the New Testament that the, that the will of Jesus is sovereign. Where's your tax money? Go catch that fish. And in that fish, you'll find two coins, my tax money and yours, right? Be still, wind and waves. His will is sovereign. His justice is patient. His mercy is available. We see all of those a- attributes demonstrated in Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And if there are any who believe that the God of Joshua 6 here is entirely out of character with the Christ of the New Testament. I, I refer you to Revelation 6, 11, 14, 16, 19, and 22. Right? The, the conquests of Joshua are actually small fries 
compared to the cosmic judgment coming when Jesus returns again. So there's, there's more here that we need to see, though, before we draw this chapter to a close. And it certainly has a, a lot to teach us about God and Christ. But it also has something to teach us about ourselves. What does it teach us about ourselves here? Well, who did I say we should identify with in this story? It's a slightly tricky question. Um, in that those who have not trusted in Christ and His mercy as their Savior and Lord should identify with the people of Jericho, right? But those who have trusted Christ have, like Rahab, acknowledged their sin, throwing themselves on the mercy of God in Christ. We should identify with the people of Israel here. We aren't Joshua. Joshua is a type of Christ, and we certainly aren't the commander of the army of the Lord, who is a theophany of Christ. We're Israel. And based on all that we have just seen about the Lord, especially in the first point about his sovereign will, what do we learn about ourselves? What did Joshua learn about himself and about the rest of the Israelites as early as verse 3? By verse 3, he had learned that Israel, despite appearances, would, as God's redeemed people, be fighting this impending battle from a place of victory already won. From a place of victory. See, I have given Israel, I have given Jericho into your hands. They weren't fighting for the victory, but from a place of victory already won. The people of Israel simply had to, had to walk by faith that the Lord had already won the battle. And again, this is a scriptural type of what the Christian life would be like later. Um, the commander of the army of the Lord is a theophany of Christ, and his victory over Jericho is, is a type of his victory over enemies, first at his cross and his resurrection, and then later at his second coming. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, in his victory already won for us on his cross and resurrection, we can now fight our daily sanctifying battles and walk our road of obedience from the place of knowledge and assurance that he has already won the battle for us. And he's already given us everything we need for the road. I'll never forget, some of you in this room may, um, may have been here for this. I'll never forget the last time Kevin Ezell was here. Kevin Ezell is the president of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. The last time he was here to preach, he gave, he gave a, anybody who watches sports, he gave a, 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 an illustration of this that, that totally resonated with me. He's a huge Kentucky fan, uh, what that's worth. Um, and he said he was so passionate about the, about the games, he, he just never watched the games live anymore. He just recorded the game, set it to record, and if, we, if, if they lost the game, he just never watched it. If they won, he would watch it. And, and doing it that way, he says, it makes it awesome watching one that you know you've already won. He said, every, every close call, every setback is a cause for absolutely zero alarm. Right? He already knows the outcome. And that is a, that's a modern illustration of the principle, the same principle Israel experienced in Joshua 6. As they went into battle, uh, and, and as the principle that we live by, as we fight the good fight of our faith of a battle already won in Christ. 
But there's one more question I want to say a, a quick word and answer to. We've, dis- we've discussed what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? But finally, what does it lead us to do? And in large part, the answer to this question lies in what, what I just said about um, it, it leads us to walk by faith in Christ and in his finished work for us. But in answer to this question, I would add just one more observation from the chapter. Did you notice that when we read the chapter, you may not have noticed this, but when we read the chapter at the beginning, after all of this talk about when you hear this trumpet blast, shout. And all this talk like in verse 10, don't say anything, don't make a sound, verse 10. Don't make your voice heard. Don't, don't, don't make a sound, no talking, no shouting. Until the word is given to shout, did you, finally, did you find it odd that when you finally come to verse 16 and he says, shout, you don't get the shout right away at least. You don't get the shout until verse 20, not in verse 17. Like you finally, you finally get to the word shout. And instead of all the people letting out a great shout as instructed right away, the story interrupts again to emphasize about what to do when they go in. Devote everything to destruction, all the people and animals. Metal goes into the, to the t- uh, tabernacle of the Lord, and special warning is given to the people. Don't keep any of the devoted things for yourselves. If you do, it's going to bring destruction upon the people and upon Israel. Now shout. Now he's like, no, I don't believe Joshua really said all of that in this precise moment like shout but hang on let me just tell you this before okay now shout i don't think that's how it happened i think the author of the book put it here to stress the serious at this moment of crescendo when you're ready for what's about to come you know we've finally been told to shout the trumpets have blasted when you're sitting on ready to pay attention to what comes next you have this thing this warning right to stress the seriousness of what was about to happen as well as to give a prelude of what we're actually going to see in the next chapter with an Israelite guy named Achan. Now we'll have a whole lot more to say about Achan next week. And our situation is not exactly like his in that he was under the old covenant of Moses and we're under the new covenant in Christ. But for our purposes here, what is the same both then and now that we should take away from this is, the, is to take seriously the destructive consequences of sin and disobedience. Not that it will separate us from Christ if we are in Him by faith. Again, we fight from a place of victory, not for a place of victory. But that does not mean that our sin has zero temporal consequences. Like it does, and it can be devastating not only to you, but to people around you that you love dearly. We are forgiven in Christ. But but for our sanctification, the Lord allows us to suffer awful temporal consequences uh, of sin and disobedience, eventually to make us more like himself. Nevertheless, what does it lead us to do? Well, it leads us to know that we are forgiven and secure in Christ, but strive for the fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law. And ask the Lord's help 
not to let you fall into temptation and not to fall in love with this present world with the deceptively destructive consequences that come with it. Consequences on us and on those around us. 